Good afternoon and welcome to the 183rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of Scandinavia and the pandemic with Leonor Orhesius, Eric Isberg, Nalan Asak, Emil Flato, and Lori Peek. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 8, 2020, there are 1,552,369 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 15,019,092 cases in the United States. There are now a total of 284,887 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 283,010 reported yesterday. Some additional perspective, there have been 359 deaths reported in Norway and 7,200 deaths reported from COVID-19 in Sweden. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Child's Death in the Heartland Changes Community Views About COVID. This was written by Sarah Shipley Hiles, published today, December 8th, by the Kaiser Health News. The dateline is Washington, Missouri. In August, local officials in this small city an hour west of St. Louis voted against requiring residents to wear masks to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. On November 23rd, with COVID cases surging and the local hospital overflowing, the city council brought a mask order back for another vote. As protesters marched outside, Councilman Nick Obermark, an electrician, was the sole member of the nonpartisan council to change his vote, causing the mandate to pass. One of his many reasons, he has a child the same age as Washington middle school student Peyton Baumgarth, 13, who on Halloween became the youngest person in Missouri to die of COVID complications. That hit pretty hard, Obermark said later. Though the councilman doesn't like wearing a mask, he said it's worth it if we can keep one or two people from getting COVID-19. Washington Missouri became the latest community to flip its stance on masks and other restrictions while the coronavirus ravages the country. As America enters a dark winter without national directives to curb the pandemic, numerous cities, counties, and states must decide, enact more restrictions now or leave people to their own will. Some in this tight-knit city of 14,000 have discovered that the answer and the key to changing hearts and minds lies in how close and real the danger seems. After a spate of nursing home fatalities early on in Franklin County, where Washington is located, two months this summer passed without a death from COVID. Some residents saw the virus as a big city problem and rejected preventive measures. Families attended weddings with hundreds of guests. Downtown merchants held Thirsty Thursday, with participants mingling over drinks. Even as officials at the city's hospital urged COVID restrictions, 
356 people signed a letter to the local paper vowing their opposition to being forced to cover our mouths in public. Republican Missouri Governor Mike Parson has declined to enact a statewide mask mandate. Franklin County presiding County Commissioner Tim Brinker posted on Twitter on July 29th, quote, Franklin County, Missouri, no mandates, low case counts, low to no hospitalizations, logic, exclamation point. Keep hands clean, and if you don't have the space, cover your face. We love freedom and respect human life. Come to Franklin County and raise your children in God's country. Hashtag COVID, unquote. In the months before the election, yards sprouted signs for President Donald Trump, who has downplayed the threat of COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. But the virus crept closer in September when 74-year-old Ralph Struckhoff died of the disease. The Missourian newspaper published a story describing him as a healthy man who had just done a day of construction work at his church before he fell ill. Please wear a mask in honor of Ralph, in memory of Ralph, his widow Jane Struckhoff wrote in a letter to the editor. If this virus can take Ralph, it can take down anyone. In November, Mayor Sandy Lucy noticed that attitudes were evolving. That's when residents heard about Peyton, the middle schooler who declined rapidly and died days after being admitted to the hospital, his mother told KMOV. According to his obituary, he was known for his love of Pokemon Go, flag football, and the St. Louis Blues. He loved his puppies, Yachty and Louie, who, who would be lost without their buddy. It said he loved listening to music and singing in the school choir. Suddenly there was a death of a 13-year-old, Lucy said, and you think maybe this virus is more vicious than I give it credit for being. Peyton's mother, Stephanie Franek, pleaded in a TV interview, wear a mask when you're in public, wash your hands and know that COVID is real. Meanwhile, cases skyrocketed. Between the first and the second mask votes, the total COVID count in Franklin County with a population around 104,000 climbed from 728 to 4,594 and deaths rose from 19 to 75. In the week ending November 23rd, 25% of COVID tests returned positive results. Mercy Hospital Washington was running out of space. Hospital President Eric Eloff tied rising hospitalizations and deaths to the absence of safety measures. As a hospital administrator, I knew we would be on the receiving end of the choices not to wear the masks and not to social distance, he said. In a surprise move, November 19th, the Franklin County Board of Commissioners enacted a mandatory mask order. Presiding Commissioner Brinker told the Missourian that he had spoken to local doctors and the St. Louis Regional Pandemic Task Force, and the numbers speak for themselves. Brinker did not respond to requests for comment for this story. Although the order already applied to the city, the Washington City Council went further and approved its own mask rule four days later. Unlike the county order, which expires December 20th, the city's mandate will stay in force based on metrics related to the new COVID cases, the new COVID case rate, hospital admissions, and deaths. Dozens of protesters wielded flags and signs against mandatory masking outside City Hall the evening of the vote. Allie and Duncan Whittington came with their four-year-old daughter. I'm here because I feel my freedom is being violated, Allie Whittington said. Councilman Obermark later said that he had lost a lot of sleep over his decision. It wasn't one thing, he said. It was several things that made me change my mind. The high positivity rate, the lack of capacity at the hospital, knowing healthy people whom COVID knocked down for days, his wife having to quarantine, and Peyton's death. He said he knew that masks aren't a cure-all, but that they could help reduce the spread until vaccines arrive. 
We tried nothing and it isn't working, he said, so we have to try something. Okay, let me bring Lori Peek in, a great friend of COVID calls and a frequent guest. Lori, it's great to see you. You too, and Scott, that was uh, that story of Peyton and of that entire town. That was um, very moving and a what a cautionary tale for us all. There are 111 kids have now died in the United States due to COVID, and Peyton is one of them. We're seeing more of these stories of teenagers. Yeah, that was really moving. That, uh, Washington, Missouri is about five hours from where my parents' farm is. And, um, you know, just the, the whole midsection of the country is just surging. And, um, yeah, so thank you for that opening, as always, of moving and uh, so important for us to hear. Well, <sighs> I'm glad to see you, as always. And for those who don't know you, uh, we will. you can check out all of Lori's work. I just want to identify her as the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Lori's a sociologist who works on disasters and children in disaster, among many, many other things. And she's also an organizer of research. And that's what brings you on today, right? Yes. So thank you for having me to talk about this 1000 Letters project. Okay. So we are in this very weird period, which people usually are playing a parlor game where they're trying to decide who's gonna be the agriculture secretary. And <laughs> instead right now we're wondering, uh, where's the leadership that's gonna get us through to January 20th as we have a transition to a new presidential administration. And you've kind of encouraged the research community to step into that gap a little bit and take action. Tell us what yes. you've got in mind, Lori. Yeah, so um, about a week and a half ago, I guess, we released this call for the 1000 Letters Project. And this is really an initiative that is in response in some ways to President-elect Biden's four major priority areas, which he has already clearly named. They're on the transition website. And those four priority areas are COVID-19, climate change, economic recovery, and racial justice. And those four areas really are, they cross cut what so many in this hazards and disaster research and practice community do. And so um, we released this call, we're trying to collect 1000 letters from the members of the hazards and disaster community so that we can uplift our collective voices, we can show ourselves as a community and I hope we can contribute during this time of transition to these four major policy priorities, but also just more generally sharing our collective knowledge and wisdom, what we know, what we think needs to be done, what we think needs to be restored or created in the emergency management and the hazards and disaster research and mitigation space. I'm just gonna put these four themes up, COVID-19, climate change, economic recovery, and racial justice. I wonder, you know, some people might be surprised that disaster researchers are engaged in particularly number three and four on that list, economic recovery and racial justice. Can you say a little bit about the complexity of this disaster as it relates to those four themes, Lori? 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think you're right that COVID-19, clearly a global catastrophe, obviously the community has risen up in response to this and COVID calls has highlighted that so beautifully. So COVID-19 and climate change, and especially the extreme events associated with climate change that are really the primary symptoms of a sick planet, those first two priority areas, you're right. I think it's like, yes, of course, the hazards and disaster community would want to respond but to the other two areas, economic recovery has actually been um, a focal area of study since even some of the earliest field research studies, as you have written about so eloquently, some of the, the earliest researchers in the late 1940s and um, early 1950s, economic recovery and business interruption were some of the, the uh, focal areas of some of those earliest studies. And to date, we have several leading economists and other researchers who really look at business recovery in the context of disaster. So that's a clear, we have things to say about that. And then in terms of racial justice, something that I'm so proud of where scholarship in the hazards and disaster field has really gone over the decades is really this recognition that the disasters aren't discrete events that are acts of God that come out of nowhere they're really rooted in societal injustices and inequalities that turn natural hazards into disasters. And so an understanding of injustice and hence possibilities for justice has really become fundamental, I think, to a lot of the disaster research and even the practice enterprise. And so plenty to say there as well. I wonder if you could say just a little bit about the logistics of this and people can, I'm going to put the link up and we'll tweet the link out so that people can find this call for the letters. But, you know, um, are you looking for a manifesto here? You know, how many, because I've, I've got one if you want to take it, but I, I, maybe people don't always have as much time to write as I do. What are you looking for? Right. Yes. So um, we have put a 500 word limit on this. And, and last night I received a very sweet email saying, Dear Miss Peak, I am so sorry, but my letter is 588 words. I hope you will still accept it, which I gladly did. But we we really capped this at 500 words due by December 15th. And the 500 words is for a reason, <laughs> because we know it's it's sometimes hard enough to get people to read 50 words these days. And so 500 words to keep these succinct, sort of what is the key point to the letter. So 500 word limit is what we're asking for, but then we really the sky is the limit from there. While there are the four priority areas that the, the transition team has named as part of the presidential transition, really more broadly the request is, again, what is it that you think, what investments need to be made in the workforce in the future of hazards and disaster research and emergency management? And so some of the letters we've received have really use their 500 words to hone in on one or more of those policy priority areas. Others have been much more general about sort of the state of emergency management and hazards and disaster research. So 500 words, please write a letter, send it to us. I am reading every single letter as it comes in. And then I've set up a database for the letters where I'm tracking the key themes that are coming through because, um, well, I think a thousand letters has a real power and a punch to it. 
we also know that those in charge are probably going to want that high level memo <laughs> to start mm -hmm. out with to see what are the key points and the themes and what is this community wanting to see moving forward. So there'll be a high level synthesis and then the, the stack of letters. You know, as you were talking, I just now realized I should have, again, I should have thought of this from the beginning. You're also creating an archive of the priority areas for the research community in this very interesting space that we're in before the inauguration. I'm sure you thought of that in your sleep six months ago, and it just now <laughs> occurred to me that this is what you're doing. Well, Scott, right back at you. I mean, every time I listen to COVID calls, I and every time when I tell people about what this is about, I say, he is a historian who is building an oral history history archive in real time. And and you're absolutely right. I when when um issuing this call, one of the things I'm always struck by when I listen to the show, when I'm on a webinar with members of our community, when I'm in a meeting in the old days when we were together in a room, I was always just so struck by there's never enough time. Everybody has something to say that matters. Everyone has a history, experiences, ideas, but oftentimes our frameworks, an hour and a half session, an hour webinar, they don't always allow for all of the voices to be heard. And so you're right, I'm hoping that this thousand letters, that it really can serve as a start, sort of archive. And I actually say that in the call that after these are all um, assembled, for privately sharing with the transition team, then I'm gonna circle back with the authors and see if they'd be willing to allow them to be a part of the thousand uh, letters project page archive on the Hazard Center website. That's tremendous. I mean, think if we had done this um, in 2008, uh, reflecting on Hurricane Katrina, or if we had done this, um, you know, well, basically anytime there's a transition of power. I, I wanna ask a question though that, um, you probably will anticipate. I sometimes hear, um, not only from emergency managers, but sometimes from them, but also from social scientists and humanists, um, can't we just stay out of the politics? What disaster, responding to disasters, helping people in need, that we shouldn't be engaged in the politics because then that seems like we're choosing sides. It shows bias. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And you know what, if I would have been the director of the Natural Hazard Center in 2016, I um, I hope that I would have had the idea. I can't say, but I wasn't the director in 2016. But you know what, if in 2024, we elect a Republican or a Democrat president in 2024, then I, I hope we could go through this same exercise together as a community. So one thing I wanna say is this definitely isn't just about that it's a democratic administration coming in. I hope we would do this anytime. And I also, I have to say, um, I, I don't fully see this as a political act. Instead, I see it as political leaders are setting an agenda that our community holds a lot of expertise in. And so if we can lend that expertise, isn't that our, our duty as citizens and scholars? And um, the final thing I'll say that actually was part of what sparked me to do this is um, we received a call at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I, I bet a lot of your other listeners who are at universities may have received a similar request. So through our government affairs office, they actually sent out a request to institute and center directors 
naming the policy priorities, and then they asked for names of people who we would recommend for political appointments, but also mm -hmm. people who hold expertise. And I was so inspired by that because I thought, here is a presidential administration reaching out to a research one university and asking us, who are the disaster experts, to quote the title of a book that I really like. And so who are the disaster experts? Right. And I was just so inspired by that. And I felt like it was my civic duty to step up because I am so inspired by this community. And so I thought, what can what can I do to like get a boatload of words from those experts? And this is one attempt for that. I mean, there's something, even describing what you just did, it would have been, and I appreciate the, the sort of bipartisan way you framed that. Um, and there are people um, in state houses across the country and municipal, local, county level, um, you know, who are identify as Republicans and Democrats and independents, uh, non-affiliated, who will be impacted by the leadership that comes out of Washington one way or the other. So I, I agree with you and I like the way you, I like the way you framed that. And even what you just said, uh, a year ago, we would have thought it would have been or four years ago. Um, why would something like this even need to be partisan or political? This just a transfer of expertise from the research community to the practitioner community and the and the political community. So I applaud what you're trying to do there. Having said that, um, maybe you don't have to tell us who you want to be the next FEMA administrator, but uh, what are the qualities? that you're looking for in leadership at Health and Human Services, at NOAA, at all of the different agencies, and we think of FEMA first, but we have to also consider the Department of Homeland Security. What are the qualities of leadership that you're looking for there? Yes, so first, uh, thank you for asking me that and not asking me to name names, but I would like to say this. I heard a, recently it was a story about the, our federal workforce and how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of federal employees there, there are who are full-time government employees. And then the, the relatively very small number who are actually political appointees who come and go as the administrations go. And so one thing I wanna say in response to that is thank goodness for our, our government workers and our public servants and the work they do every single day to keep the machinery of our institutions moving forward. And when our institutions are stretched to the limit, may we thank those government workers who without recognition, without thanks, without acknowledgement oftentimes continue with the work that they see is going to help to make this a stronger nation. So one thing I wanna say about leadership is I think that over these past several years, we've really been able to see on full display the power and the patriotism and the commitment of the everyday um, civil servants who are a member of our members of our federal workforce. Now, in addition <laughs> to answer your question, there are obviously these very powerful and important political appointees who come in to lead our major federal agencies that have an influence over all of our lives, from what weather warnings we do or do not receive to what, whether we get the vaccine or not. And so I think the, the qualities that um, I would look for in those political leaders is first and foremost, deep expertise in whatever agency that it is that they are set to lead. 
that they hold expertise in that area, whether it's in homeland security and emergency management, health and human services, geological sciences, um, and so forth. And so I think having deep expertise, having a respect for the institutions that they and the people that make those institutions possible, I think is crucially important. Having a respect for government and the role that government plays in all of our lives and also um, having a recognition of the immense crises that we're facing right now and the power and the limits that government can play and that and hence the role that the rest of us, the pi- private sector, um, civil society that we may need to play in helping to make this great experiment that we call the United States actually work. Well, that's, um, it, all of that is is very well taken and the parlor game of who's gonna be at the head of FEMA, for example, is a never ending thing. But I think, you know, just to come back to those four themes, there's a lot of work to do, um, particularly on climate and particularly on all of them. Um, incredibly hardworking workforce in HHS and in FEMA and in, in, of course in DHS and all the way, in, again, in states and localities. Taking racial injustice on board and taking climate change on board, I think people who may not be as familiar with this, that is going to be a big sea change in the brief for those agencies. So having this letters project underline that is is really crucial. And I know the hazards meeting this year has I mean, that's really part of the discourse right now among the research community. Yeah, yes, it absolutely is. And and I will say that our federal partners who attend that meeting oftentimes, you know, really remark on how important it is to have that connection to the, the academic research community. Obviously, there are federal scientists, policymakers, and practitioners who are there as well as local state, private sector. And so I think it's that having all the powerful voices in the room, having the the minds from the emerging scholars up to the senior scholars and practitioners who've seen seen it all twice and three times. I think that sort of, um, I guess I'd add that as a characteristic for our new leaders too, people who are really willing to listen and to consult those who are already out there, but also who are willing to um, really say we, in the face of all the crisis, the crises that are unfolding, we may need to figure out some new pathways forward. Okay, so it's the 1000 Letters Project and you can check that out on the Hazards uh, Center website and we'll be sure to tweet that out and just note here, if you wanna send the email in, write your letter, make it as PDF and send it to 1000letters, 1000letters at colorado.edu and Lori Peak will read your letter and pass it along. So, Lori, great project, and as usual, great to speak with you. Scott, always a pleasure and an honor, and um, I can't wait to listen to the rest of the show. So, uh, thank okay. you so much. Okay, okay. happy holidays, Have thanks. Okay, and we're gonna turn to the next part of our discussion today, and let me introduce my guests for this second part of COVID Calls today. Nalan Azak is a medical anthropologist pursuing a PhD at the Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages at the University of Oslo. Her research explores the local infrastructure and use of antibiotics in Turkey in light of the current antimicrobial resistance problem by drawing on discourses of medical anthropology and the history of public health in Turkey. Eric Isberg is a PhD candidate in the Division of History of Science 
Technology and Environment at the KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. He is currently working on a thesis on the history of post-war paleoclimatology and the making of Anthropocene temporalities. This spring, Eric wrote about the times of knowledge production during the pandemic for the Swedish daily Svenska Dagbladet. Emil Flato is a PhD candidate at the Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages in Oslo. His research concerns the interdisciplinary transatlantic network of managers, scientists, and bureaucrats that spawn the traditions for making claims about society and climate's entwined futures. This history of risk management is relevant to the sorts of knowledge politics that have been playing out around the COVID-19 pandemic, especially concerning the shared emphasis on modeled knowledge. Previously, Flato was a staff writer at Morgenbladet, a Norwegian weekly of arts, science, and politics. And our fourth guest for this segment is Leonor Borgesius, an environmental historian doing a PhD in cultural history at the University of Oslo. She was also a guest researcher at the Division for the History of Science, Technology, and Environment at the KTH in Stockholm. She writes on the history of the imagining, planning, and construction of infrastructure works in the Netherlands and colonial Suriname. She's specifically interested in how these structures invite environmental knowledge, production and distribution and carry imaginaries of progress and modernity. So glad to bring these brilliant researchers to COVID calls. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks so Thanks much for, for having us. us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And the special shout out as usual to guests who are well ahead of the East Coast of the United <laughs> States in time. It's middle of the night there and Nalan, particularly you, and actually I have to start with Nalan, just tell us where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is there. And thank you for staying up so late. Thank you, Scott. Um, I'm calling in from Istanbul, Turkey. Um, currently, there's a curfew in Turkey in the evenings from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the mornings and full time on weekends. Um, the rates are quite high or they uh, announced the asymptomatic cases as well a few weeks ago. So there is an air of panic. Um, Restaurants have closed down again. Uh, schools have closed. They were open um, from the beginning of term. Well, some year groups were. Um, but yeah, life is carrying on. Uh, people are still out when they can be uh, and they need to go to work. But um, yeah, it's uh, that's, that's about it. Have you been there in the balance of the time in the pandemic or did you travel to Turkey? Were oh, you no. there doing research? Help me understand your movements <laughs> yes. this time. Um, I uh, arrived in, on the 1st of, 1st of October. So it's mm. been a bit over two months now. And I came to do my field work um, mm. and it was going okay. Well, with, with all the delays because I'm working, um, doing research about antibiotics so I need access to healthcare institutions which has been difficult um, and I've been at home for the past few weeks uh, as the rates have been increasing um, but I'm still happy to be here to be able to observe how the pandemic plays out in everyday life. This problem of even the concept of field work yeah <laughs> which I think for everybody in the kind of research we all do there was deep despair by May and June that people were going to have to change the dissertation topics, they're going to have to give up on mm -hmm. book projects, whatever it was. But you made the decision to to go ahead. I mean, I, I guess the indicators by late summer were maybe you could get some field work done, like real field work, like in the field. 
Yes, yes. I did take some courses on how to do field work on Zoom and, um, you know, uh, going beyond traditional methods. Um, and they have been useful. Uh, so I'm even doing some of my interviews here over Zoom now because it's um, too risky to go in or meet people in person. Um, so I'm kind of doing a bit of both and I still wanted to be here to see how the pandemic unfolds because I think that's part of my research. It's um, I can't really leave it out of the questions that I have. Eric, let's turn to you. Where are you calling from and what's it looking like there pandemic-wise? Yes, I'm calling from Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, and uh, just before I came on here, I read that uh, this is the darkest, literally the darkest December since 1934, with zero hours of sunlight right now. And I think maybe is the situation uh, in terms of the pandemic is perhaps not quite that grim, but it is uh, a very rough situation right now in Sweden, where the second wave has come on quite strongly uh, after sort of slowly rising uh, throughout the fall. Uh, so we're seeing a, a very high number of cases. It seems that the, it's plateauing right now, but on a very high level. So it's mm. definitely not quite as high as in the spring, but still very high, I think, among the highest uh, rates in Europe right now. So there we are back to uh, restrictions that are actually more strict than in the spring, uh, with a maximum gathering of eight people uh, and uh, many, many, most people try to work from home if they are, if it's possible and, and recommended to not socialize with people outside of their household. So, uh, so it's very much in the midst, in the midst of the second wave, I think I would summarize it. What about your own experience of doing research at this time? Have you had to modify your, your plans for, for where you might go and even the kinds of questions you might ask in the work? Yeah, yeah, to, to a quite high degree, actually, because my, my PhD project is, is based partly or to some quite large extent with U.S. sources and U.S. archives. And that has obviously been a, a quite rough uh, thing to have right now. So I've been trying to sort of perhaps re reformulate some questions to look into more Scandinavian contexts. But any kind of archival visits, for example, for an historian has been very hard to conduct. So I'm, it's getting more and more theory heavy now, <laughs> my work. Uh, uh, so, so there's definitely been implications. You know, one of the things, just to linger on that for a second, the, there's been so much, so much enthusiasm for the digitization of archives, for historical archives, and of course, great progress made in that. And then all of a sudden, uh, maybe this resonates with you, um, we really put that to the test starting in March to find out how much truly had been digitized and how much we could get away with not having an, an expert an archivist. In my own experience, I can tell you I haven't gotten very far. Um, yeah, I, I would share that experience very much. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it became very clear to me actually how, how, how dependent we are on the material archives, at least in, in my, in my case. Thanks, Eric. Emil, let me bring you in on this. Where, where are you located right now and, and how is the pandemic looking there? Uh, I'm located in Oslo, Norway, um, where it was looking, I guess the, the, the fall we were kind of moving like a slow train um, towards a, a second wave um, and it was looking pretty spooky uh, at a point there, but now um, we are in lockdown again, but we are past um, the peak, it looks like. Um, so it seems it's going to be possible to celebrate some kind of a Christmas without um, putting a lot of people under uh, threat by traveling. And have you found this to have a, an impact on your ability to 
uh, move around, do the kind of work you need to do? Yeah, my story is basically the exact same as, as really? Eric. Uh, I was going to be in America this year visiting archives, uh, which obviously didn't pan out. Um, as to the question of digitization, I think it would be a very good time to study um, you know, handwritten manuscripts from Norway in the 1700s or something right now, because the Norwegian National Library is running a very, very ambitious uh, digitization project, and they have been for for years. So, so that's in the clouds, but not the stuff that I need. Amazing. Well, I, I guess I don't, can't apologize for my entire country, but I may as well. I, I can't imagine how many people around the world have, have had their business, their research disrupted at this time because they just can't get into the United States, or if they do, the facilities they want to use are, are closed. And we have no way of knowing because it's, you know, if your research materials are in California or New York, um, those states have been more aggressive at trying to get things open. But if your research materials are in the American Midwest or the South, it could be an awfully long time before you get access to those things. Leonor, let me bring you in now. Same question, where are you and, and what's it looking like there? Hi, um, I'm also in Oslo. Uh, so more or less the, the same yeah, kind of situation. Um, it has to be said though that um, a peak in, in Norway looks very different from a peak in, in Sweden. So in terms of absolute numbers, uh, it's in no way comparable. Um, which, which is a very good thing, which makes it, for example, possible for us to, to uh, come into the office every so often. Um, I recently moved to a new apartment and uh, it, it seems like the entire building started to redoing their bathrooms. Uh, so <laughs> I had to negotiate some sort of time uh, with, um, um, with the administration for me to come in. So that's, that's really, that's very, really, very nice. Um, but in terms of yeah archives and research i've been uh, yeah i think most of us have been have been compromised some more than others um so in my case i have uh, my, uh, my research deals primarily with uh, dutch dutch sources mm -hmm. um and most of them are in the netherlands um i very quickly realized that there would be no way of traveling to South America, where, which is where the sort of the second part of my dissertation research is focused, Suriname, which is a it's a very small uh, country uh, in between uh, Guyana and, uh, mm. and Brazil. Um, so once I realized that I actually needed those archives, that was about like February. So there's no that's I had to kick out that entire ambition, I guess. Um, but I have been very fortunate when it comes to uh, the digitization efforts of, of the Dutch Royal Library and the Dutch National Archive. They have an, a gigantic uh, digital archive that is online, which uh, carries their, their ambition is to digitize everything that is published in terms of uh, journals, magazines, newspapers. Wow. Um, up, up until I think 20 years ago. And it so happens that quite, that I found a lot of useful material, which means that I've sort of had to change some source material, but, and that I, I mean, automatically also leads to like some changes in the questions that, that we can ask, but it's more than I hoped for. So I'm, I'm very, very, I have to send some personal emails, I think, to 
to people who actually pushed for for that project because it's saving us all uh, at this point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is one of those times where um, if you go back and think about writers and scholars who were working in the in the Cold War, who were working in World War II in various times, where if, if you know what you're looking for, you start to piece things together, even if they're not writing about that war or that disaster, that becomes the background of the work that they're writing. And I feel like that's gonna be sort of the decoder ring for a lot of the work that we're all producing right now. Even if it's not directly about COVID, that imprint will be there. Leonor, I, I, I wanna stay with you for a second. Part of what we wanted to talk about today was the situation in Scandinavia and particularly the kinds of cross-border tensions that have come about at this in this time, Sweden has been in the news, Norway less, in the, wet, in, the, in the news in the United States for its approach to the pandemic. I wonder if you could just orient us a little bit to the different approaches that the two countries have taken and the kinds of tensions that have resulted, and then we can open that up to anybody else who wants to talk about it. Yeah, great. Thanks um, for the question. I think um, this, this question is a, it's a very complicated and, and broad one. Um, and very impactful, um, and we can probably unpack it in a million uh, different ways. Um, because I, th so broadly speaking, uh, I think it's safe to to say that Norway took a very uh, hands-on approach with with quite strict lockdowns very early on uh, in March, whereas Sweden famously took a completely different. Uh, approach, keeping a lot more open, a lot less measures with with a very big uh, death counts as a result. And historically, obviously, and also geographically, these nations are very, very close, uh, and which automatically, obviously, leads to a lot of cross nat national uh, relations. And in my case, that's that's very literal. My partner lives in Stockholm, which normally wouldn't ne necessarily be difficult because uh, it's eight hours less if you take a train six hours i think it's a one hour flight or something um and suddenly borders close which is an incredibly strange experience uh it messes with your sense of geography in a very fundamental way strangely enough but obviously this leads to uh this leads to to all kinds of tensions uh, because it it messes with uh, trade relations. Uh, with uh, there's a, there's famously um, alcohol uh, is is a lot cheaper in Sweden, so Norwegians <laughs> tend to drive across the border um, for groceries, and all of these sort of these businesses they they come to a standstill at this point. Um, it's um it's tense. Uh, and I think for many, it also came unexpected uh, that that these borders can that these borders suddenly sort of froze up. Um, yeah. Let me bring Emil on, on this and to this question of the 
of the surprise of it. Were you surprised that the two countries, Norway and Sweden, took such different approaches? And, and as it's unfolded, the national discourse about whether or not a country has handled this well or not, I'm, I'm sort of interested, again, in that comparison. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm surprised that it's played out in very strange and specific ways. I'm not sure that's the big surprise, but I have been surprised at the, you know, because there's, you know, rivalry between between Norway and Sweden is usually a, a fairly sort of lighthearted thing, you know, we're the baby brother, we like to kind of take a jab every once in a while. Um, but the tenor of the of the difference uh, in this crisis has become really intense on uh, Sweden in particular feeling assailed and um, making, you know, rustling diplomatic feathers even in terms of, of you know, long-term uh, relations uh, with the two countries. So I've been surprised at the, at the intensity uh, of, the, of the rivalry uh, around it. Um, as to the, the tactics chosen, I'm not sure that I would have that down to any broader differences between our countries or, or, or the cultures, because it seems to have so much to do with the uh, specific way that the pandemic laws are organized in the two countries and the way that expertise uh, for, for decision-making uh, is organized. And I think we could have very easily uh, wound up in the same uh, situation here in Norway as in Sweden. So that's kind of a fluke or a, what's the word? Like, yeah. But the, the specific decision to embrace this kind of herd immunity strategy, it, to your knowledge, I mean, was that ever discussed in, in Norway or was that ever thought to be maybe that would be a pan-Scandinavian kind of approach or that's something uniquely, um, you know, to this time and place in Sweden's expert culture? Well, no one will really take the herd immunity word in, into their mouths, right? It's like, yeah. a, it's a dirty word. Um, but uh, I definitely think that the the strategy that that Anders and, and the Swedish public health uh, authority have, have chosen um, has a lot of authority here too. Uh, we need to remember that the European, um, what's the word, um, the EU's uh, pandemic response or public health body is located in Stockholm. I think there's a really tight epistemic community there that um, is also being heard in Norway and has close ties with our public health body. Um, they would deny today that that is the, the strategy that they went for, but I think you can certainly see that they were more sanguine about the possibilities of flattening the curve as opposed to to cracking down more resolutely. Uh, and my father who works for the other public health board in Norway claims that if they weren't around to hand their um, uh, their opinion, their, their expert opinion uh, to government, they wouldn't have had uh, a different um, foundation on which to, to, to choose a different strategy. Hmm. Eric, let's bring you in on this. Anything you want to add to what's been said so far about the, the approaches of the two different countries? Yeah, no, but I think there's a lot of truth to what, what Emil and Leonorius just said, that, that these, these strategies have panned out very differently, but with very sort of minor technical things leading to that outcome. I think there's really something to more of how the state authorities are organized in the respective countries. And then in Sweden, we have these very strong independent state authorities that can do a lot without the government intervening. So there was really this small group of, of experts with Anders Tegenell, the state epidemiologist, becoming the sort of phase four that, that got a lot, of, a lot of say in this, whereas the politicians were not that involved, contrary to Norway, where I think uh, Anders Tegnell, for example, is a, is, knows all these experts in Norway. I think there's a very close-knit community 
but it's more of the kind of role they get in the, how, how much say they get in the policy. So I think that would be rather the kind of starting point for these vastly different strategies, but they started out in this kind of small group that is, is not really, I think, founded in, in, in deep cultural differences, but then I think this is set in motion, all, all these different kinds of things between the two countries uh, that has been quite interesting to follow, I think, in terms of Sweden-Norway relations. But I think the origins of it is really uh, quite quite sort of uh, part of the governance yeah, structures I of the countries. You know, Eric, there was a um, article that was a front page article in the late spring in the New York Times. The, the Times has covered a lot of what has been going on in Sweden. And of course, in the United States, we think if you make it to the cover of the New York Times, um, then that's global news, right? That may not, that's a particularly American perspective. Let me, let me put a pin in that. Nevertheless, um, it does seem that American attention, particularly American media attention to what came to be seen as Swedish missteps, um, started to jangle the nerves in Swedish government and with deeper concerns that it might be damaging um, Swedish brands, investment, they would have ripple effects that go well beyond the pandemic. And this pandemic is not just physical, bio, a biological thing, it's also an economic issue. As well, I wonder if you could give me a little feedback on your take on that. Is that just Americans thinking that something is important when we say it is on the cover of the front page of the New York Times? Or is there something deeper at work there about the, the, the perception of how the rest of the world is seeing what's going on in Sweden? Yeah, no, I think definitely. Maybe, not, as, as you say, not particularly that New York Times article, but I mean, Sweden was very, at least was my perce perception in Sweden, that there was a lot of discussions in many countries. Uh, and I think definitely Sweden is a small country that takes a lot of, we're very sort of sensitive to what the world thinks of us. It's a big debate in Swedish politics, even before the pandemic, it can concern other issues. Uh, the way we talk about how does the rest of the world perceive us and perhaps mostly uh, the US then. So I think definitely that was the case. And I think also it's notable now during the second wave now in the fall, the government has taken a much more hands-on approach. And there has been a kind of transfer of power from the state authorities to the government. And I think now when we're approaching Christmas, uh, I think the Swedish and Norwegian regulations are very similar actually in the end. So I, there's definitely been a kind of uh, awareness from the Swedish side as I've interpreted it to, to sort of push more for a government, yeah, more kind of the same framework as other Scandinavian countries, but much later than. Right. I just wanted to, to say that there is one thing I remembered in terms of whether there have been cultural stories about what's been going on. I think um, a lot of Norwegians were, were surprised to see the Swedes not resist more uh, when one expert community was taking completely insane uh, decisions. And actually, they, they kind of rallied around him. You know, there were reports of people tattooing Anish Tegnell on their uh, on themselves and, and, and stuff. Um, and I think, you know, especially in these last years when, um, you know, um, intersectional politics have had a lot more sway in Sweden than in Norway. There's been the different uh, refugee poli politics. There's been a very strong story in Norway about you know this very strong authoritarian culture of political correctness as opposed to the kind of ragged uh, peasant uh, Norwegian. And I think um, the Swedish pandemic response really played into to those narratives here in Norway. Let's bring Nalan into the conversation. If you want to comment on anything that has been said, but also maybe we can broaden the geography a little bit outside of Scandinavia and talk about, from your perspective, um, the degree to which the pandemic has exacerbated existing tensions 
or maybe drawn expert communities together. I've seen less about that, but I'm really interested in 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 that aspect of this as well. Um, do, do you mean between Turkey and sure. other countries? Um, well, the, the I remember the UK uh, not having enough equipment and protective gear and Turkey sending some equipment to uh, the UK and uh, being very proud over this um, in the in the first few months. Um, but otherwise, the response to the pandemic has been late in Turkey as well. It wasn't announced until the 12th of March. Um, and with the experts, I mean, it, it hasn't really been great in Turkey either in terms of um, revealing the real numbers or doing enough testing. Um, and um, But people have been encouraged to wear masks. Well, it's compulsory to wear masks uh, in public since the since it was the first corona case was announced um and i think one reason why turkey did um well relatively okayish uh, is due to the high number of icu beds um that's that's one of the factors um but but still uh, now there's this conversation about the vaccine um and they don't have the um, equipment to store or or transport and uh, store the vaccines from Europe. So they're now importing uh, vaccines from China and they, they're going to test them first before it's um, given Wonder, out to Milan, the public. Could you say a little bit more too about the, you were telling us about, your, you know, coming to Istanbul to do your field work, um, but a little bit more just about mm -hmm. the sort of med medical expert community that you're um, engaged with there, and 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 particularly around issues mm -hmm. like fatigue, um, problems of being heard in policymaking circles. What are some of the frustrations that you're witnessing right now? There are some very big frustrations, um, especially because there, there have been a lot of uh, healthcare staff um, dying from COVID, uh, and it's not. Um, accounted for as uh, a fatality caused by um, their profession. Um, and so there has been a lot of um, doctors speaking up about this and um, wanting to be heard. Uh, there is a lot of fatigue, uh, especially with families. I was having one interview with a doctor over Zoom last, a few weeks ago, and he was wearing a mask over Zoom, which really surprised me. Um, and it turns out he was, um, someone tested positive uh, at his clinic. So he had to wear masks at home as well. So there is an extreme amount of fatigue. Um, and uh, a lot of general practices say they don't know much about the medications being given out, uh, the advice. Uh, so they can't, they, they don't feel informed enough um, to guide their patients um, when they call them. Uh, so yeah, there is a lot of lack of information, a lot of uncertainty uh, and lack of support. One of the real challenges that we've seen, um, I think this is a global issue, is, is how to frame the pandemic 
as a, we understand it's a pandemic. So by, by definition, it's a global phenomena, but -hmm. it's being dealt with at national and subnational levels. And I want to ask everybody about this and maybe Nilan, I'll start with you. The extent to which you've seen the discourse around the pandemic response, um, sort of talk about something that's inherently Turkish. There's something about the state. There's something unique about ethnicity, perhaps, that gives people strength. Or maybe the other side that you would argue, and we've heard this in the United States, that there are fundamental flaws in American culture that have actually led us to have really grievous inequalities. It's racism in, in this country. That's, that's the story about COVID, one of the many stories. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that from the, from the Turkish perspective. To what extent is there a such thing as a Turkish response to disaster? Well, at the beginning of this, there was a very funny discourse. Um, so because Turkey was so delayed in announcing the first case, that there was this idea of the corona don't hit the Turks. It's like a genetic thing. And um, and then there was another one saying, um, you know, t- Turkish people are very clean. They, um, so they, you know, won't get the, the virus. Um, but of course, um, as time um, revealed, um, it didn't turn out to be so. But still, there, there, you, you also see it in discourses of the medication. For instance, they say, we will invent a local medication for this. We will invent a, a Turkish vaccine uh, in the coming months. So th- there is that kind of discourse uh, coming along. And also in terms of... Um, immunity and immunity boosting um, medicines and foods. So you see a lot of the medication going along with um, Turkish local products, uh, vinegar and garlic and uh, all the rest of it. Let's, I'd like to turn that same question, Emil. Let me bring you in on, on that. Is, is, is there something inherently Norwegian about the response? Is it is it given rise to some sort of enhanced nationalism, something about national character or beyond that, racial character? Um, at least national character. I hope I hope it's limited to that, but but I don't know. Um, it's actually funny because we wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago, all of us, right? And uh, I was saying that they were they were just bringing up the term Amnelladeslanda, which means the different country which is a trope of Norwegian exceptionalism that um, most recently it's been aired uh, with respect to the financial crisis that kind of hit all of Europe, but not Norway, because we're an oil country. Um, uh, and, and, and very quickly they, they started bringing that out when it looked like there wouldn't be a second wave in Norway. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but since I haven't heard it being used anymore. Um, the, different, the, the, the second big national uh, trope that's been uh, brought out is Dugnad's on so the idea that we're a particularly public spirited uh, mm-hmm. nation who come together and and uh, rally, um, which I think you know I would assume most countries have a, have a similar way of uh, talking. So the exceptionalism to it doesn't quite um, bear out. Um, but I do think that 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 what it does speak to, and I think you saw this in in Sweden as well, is that especially in these really homogenous countries, right? Um, there can be a tendency that, and, and you also have sort of well-functioning political institutions, but they are very tied to the majority uh, population. And this kind of 
superstructure of a cultural story that the institutions use to then uh, uh, bring out their their politics um, doesn't quite work once you once you go beyond the perimeter uh, of, of who's covered by the by the term. You know, so both in Sweden and Norway, um, I think the term they're using right now is foreign-born populations have been more severely hit, which tells you something about the policies not quite reaching. I was looking at a Eric. I was looking at a, a news article uh, published in Sweden back in May, and they were it was sort of early kinds of stories. You saw these in lots of countries saying here are the particularly at risk populations, um, and it said and it used this kind of very um, inexact language about um, people who were not Swedish somehow. And, I, and I'd have to, you know, and it seemed like the article was hedging. It was men who were, um, who had low income and people who were from outside of the country, but didn't go much further than that into describing the nature of really what they were talking about here. So I guess I want to sort of get your take on what Emil is talking about and Ilan is talking about the degree to which there's been a discourse about what it means to be Swedish and not Swedish in this time and how that refracts. I think this is where Emil was going on immigration and on the plurality of a society? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, and I think there's been very clear in the kind of Swedish, kind of the evolution of different kind of Swedish identities in this, in this like, as the pandemic has been progressing. Because I think as, as Nalan said here, there's been a kind of multiple discourses in a way of, 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 of what would be the Swedish approach to uh, to this. And, and I think it, it started out in this, kind of odd place at least I found and I remember Leonor and I talked about it when Leonor was here in Stockholm, this this notion of a, a Swedes would not need any tough regulations because this was kind of national exceptionalist, sort of very norma binding, very follow, follow, we just need a recommendation, we don't need rules. And it was a kind of national, we have such trust in our experts, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that of course, once the pandemic started to, to sort of get out of hand during the spring was a hard narrative to maintain. Uh, and there, I think also these kind of the, the communities that got very disproportionately hit in, in, in for example, some suburbs in Stockholm with a high degree of, uh, of immigrants uh, as part of the population that was hit very, very badly. And then that narrative started to sort of fall apart because what, what were you supposed to do with it in a sense? Because it was obvious that there were socioeconomic factors here at play that can't be really, uh, if, if people are working and can't work from home because you have a, a job where you have to go to your to your workplace, for example, or you live a lot of people in a small apartment because you can't afford a bigger one. And then you can't really put that on, on kind of the rational quality of, of the Swedes. So it, it sort of fell apart when, as Emil said, this kind of superstructure of thinking about what this meant and then the kind of material reality when those two narratives did not really uh, work out in any cohesive way. And I think that really came across very strongly in Sweden as the pandemic unfolded and still is unfolding. Leonor, I want to ask you too, but can, can we talk about the Netherlands in this regard too? I mean, another country that somehow discovered some aspects of national identity, which might often be tamped down, but emerge in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, uh, sadly enough, this this narrative of, of a sort of strong uh, sense of nationality, or even, yeah, I, 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 I go so far is to call it an, a sort of ethnically defined nationality as opposed to those with what in the Netherlands they call a, a, um, 
a migrant background. That's that's the politically correct way to to call this now. Uh, this this was definitely uh, definitely going on uh, and and still is going on uh, in the Netherlands as well. So they were fairly late in announcing measures um and and when they did also these measures like it, it there was a lot of discussion out in the open of of what kind of measures and how far reaching should they be should the schools open or not should they close um and and this is this i think was it, it was then also explained this kind of discussion in itself is explained as, as being typically dutch um, um so the Dutch are, are um, notorious for for having this political culture of of discussion of debate uh, of lots of talking and then finding a compromise that then does work but also lacks like actual um, sometimes very necessary action um, and and there's a lot of research on on why this is the case uh, it supposedly had to do with uh, yeah. with its its environmental history with water um uh water management uh which required a lot of collaboration from for centuries basically um at least so that's the story um so so there was a lot of sort of from the the politicians or from sort of the government there was a call upon this you know this level-headedness and we will discuss and we will talk and we will have another committee and, and then another committee making research and reports into this and then we'll take decisions with the result that indeed for example with uh, the testing capacity that's a, it's a very profound example um it was eventually scaled up but not too much not not enough and too late um and and it still isn't quite where it's where it's supposed to be or where it, it should be um so it had quite profound consequences and and then the whole narrative of of you know immigrants being responsible for this is it's been it's been there all along including headlines that say you know oh statistically right um it's mostly people who are not who are you know who have a, a migrant background that are at mm -hmm. risk without actually addressing you know the socio-economical circumstances uh, of, of why that is the case um so it's i think i think it's safe to say that in in most european countries they fall back on a certain sort of self national self-understanding um to explain their policy and and simultaneously there are also very similar tendencies with regards to uh, to a sort of a darker side of, of nationalism. Uh, Islamophobia is, is very very much rampant um, in the Netherlands, for example, and and those yeah they're on the rise very much uh, mm -hmm. very much so I would say. You know, it's a uh, what you're describing too is it's been a Rorschach test probably everywhere, certainly in the United States. That when you make it, when you present what seems to be quite obvious epidemiological findings that people in the United States who come from minority communities are experiencing inequality in terms of infection rates and death, I, I think the majority of Americans look at that and they say, "Oh, well, then we have to address inequality." But there's always that segment of society, and unfortunately, here it's been a growing segment that's 
taken the opposite approach and said, oh, well, then we have a problem with minorities in this country. And that sort of right, uh, that I think we see that across, uh, we see that in Brazil, we've seen that in, uh, I think, anywhere in the world where there, we've been able to sort of follow these kinds of discourses. And we, I don't think we have the luxury of discounting them as aberrant. I mean, I think that's one of the features of this time and what this pandemic is exposing is a consistent space for xenophobic and right-wing voices to make a case which echoes back to eugenics and things that a lot of us have thought we'd heard the last of and maybe naively. So Emil, I don't know if you want to come in on, on this or anything else we've been talking about. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I, I also think there's something about um, how um, this is being mediatized that will really feed into that, right? We've seen here a couple of examples of, you know, there is a so-called super spreader event uh, at a wedding, a Muslim wedding uh, out in a, in a municipality in the, in the district, uh, which which got a lot of um, xenophobic attention. There's something about the way that, you know, it came, became about the rituals and it was very ugly. Um, but what I actually wanted to, to ask you guys was whether you think that the pandemic is perhaps changing uh, perceptions or ways that governments in Europe are responding to, to, to matters of, of ethnic-based inequities. Because I, I know that in Norway, you know, seeing that we have a public health crisis that is hitting so differentially uh, in terms of, of ethnicity and that we're really failing in certain communities and, and also to reach out. And you've actually had sort of, for instance, in the Somali community, it's been a volunteer-based thing uh, for, for people in the community to go together and make sure that information is communicated. Well, I think that's a bit of a shock to a country that is so so that that's so used to thinking of itself as as well managed, and I heard just today that the government has gotten savvier about who they're who they're consulting with, uh, in terms of reaching out to different um, uh, communities that don't speak the language. For before they would go to these big umbrella organizations, now they're actually uh, uh, they've gotten uh, more informed about who's actually working on these issues uh, on the ground. So that was a glimmer of hope to me. I wonder if you guys have seen similar things. Yeah, maybe I could say something to that on, from, a, from a Swedish perspective that I think that has been very evident in Sweden as well and sort of very much a late sort of noticing that too late that this was an issue uh, that that also perhaps comes from the kind of narrow expert culture that has been sort of uh, leading the kind of um, the ambition to, 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 to navigate in this pandemic that it's been a kind of clear sense that this knowledge has occurred very late that how to sort of reach out to different communities and how to have these kind of more nuanced understanding of society that I think these kind of national myths has been very present even among the experts themselves, the medical expertise, that this has not really been an issue, uh, at least in my perception, that has been very strongly felt in the community, but it's sort of now sort of stumbling across it <laughs> as a bit, a bit late. And I think that has been very present in, in Sweden as well. Uh, so, so definitely some kind of hope, but also a bit of a frustration because I think there is a lot of expertise already out there among among different communities and among scholars, among the, all these kinds of different groups that could have already been part of those conversations and at a much earlier stage, in a sense. Let me, Leonor, did you want to come in on that or, or, or Nalan? Yeah, uh, just real quick. Um, I think for, for the Dutch perspective, um, there is increasing attention, especially from the public actually for systemic 
racism and specifically anti-black racism because the Dutch have a very profound history of, and long history of slavery. Um, and, and this discussion has been increasingly uh, present, luckily. And what is less so uh, critically examined is, is, is very profound Islamophobia. Uh, which is indeed, um, it's it's very profound. Like you can see it very much in uh, there. There's all kinds of statistics on this. How people with, um, um, uh, for example, there's there's lots of there's a big Moroccan community. People with Moroccan-sounding names have a profound disadvantage on the housing market, on the job market. Um, they are. In, um, uh, this is a recent scandal. The tax office is examining them uh, more. Uh, and, and more, and they're under more scrutiny in that department. So there's 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 increasing public debate, but there is very little um, action from government institutions to to yeah just to, to do something about it. Um, to put it uh, bluntly, um, yeah, which is no surprise with the center right wing government. Um, yeah, that's how it is. want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about Scandinavia and the rest of Europe and Turkey and the pandemic. And I want to, um, I want to ask a sort of a broad question and, and see where it intersects each of your thinking at this time. I know you all think about the environment broadly and about history of the environment and about the Anthropocene, um, which is a term that we use more and more to describe this period of time of global change as one that's been wrought by human activity. And, um, you know, I've been very struck, and I actually got to talk with Dipesh Chakrabarti about this um, earlier on in the spring. Um, I've been struck by the real usefulness of those concepts in this time, frankly, um, that to understand COVID-19, you had to really be thinking about planetary scale changes that went well beyond the virus. And also, though, to be thinking about the, the ways that the response, and this is when I'm, I'm sort of puzzling this part still, because there's been a lot of frustration, rightly so, um, with the sort of idea that there could be a global response to climate change, for example. And the global governmental structures that we've set up are quite good at gathering knowledge and not as good at framing policy. And in the midst of that despair, a good chunk of the world in the springtime um, went on lockdown. It was a massive collective action. Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm kind of, uh, you know, my inherent pessimism was tempered a little bit in the spring. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. And maybe that's an aberrant moment as we look back on this pandemic in its totality, maybe we'll look back and say, well, that was sort of born of fear or of uncertainty and not so much out of, out of collective action. But that's one of the dimensions of this that's been, that's been on my mind. And, and I ask this question to each of you because I know you think about it both in a contemporary sense and a historical and a perspective, but what do you think that these broader temporalities do for us in this time? And I, and I wanna ask something 
connected with that if you want to take it on, which is how do we translate that kind of thinking into policy language that policymakers can actually pick up? Because so much of our disaster response is very much in the moment. It's about the disaster as a happening right now. We're going to deal with it in the now. And it doesn't leave space for this broader, this broader thinking. I guess what I've just described is less a question and more just a, a, a field of inquiry. But I, I sort of know, I'd like to know where you're where your thinking is is on this, Emil. Let me start with you on this. Um, well, I just think you know, it, it, for me, it was such a weird experience to be to be studying the terms of of climate futurity, which is you know has such a weird you know it's a really extended temporality and it's not really located where the time of, of decision uh, making really is. So so it was really weird to see what I could recognize as terms from those debates or for other uh, risk debates uh, happening in, in, in a so much more uh, concrete situation. Um, and I thought, you know, this spring I was looking at um, the Norwegian response, I was looking at these competing expert views um, and, and basically talking about how the sort of precautionary principle was being sidelined uh, in favor of, of this idea that the models were actually necessary for a proper response because we are now able to see things down the road that we can't uh, disregard, right? That like the idea that if you didn't build herd immunity, for instance, you would have, uh, you know, it would hit you like, hit you like a boomerang. Um, but I'm really, um, it, the importance of the time of action and the period in which sort of all of uh, society is in, in, in lockdown um, and, and just how much that changes uh, has really been, been brought home to me, and I think you can really see that uh, the more resolute the action was in the first place, and the more completely the risk was uh, clamped down on, um, the better they have fared now in the second uh, wave, right? So really moving from this kind of debate about how do we handle uncertainty to the importance of, of the actual moment that government takes action. Hmm. Eric, can I get your perspective on this? Yeah, no, I think Emil points to something really important here, which is this kind of reliance on, on prediction and, and modeling. And I think that's also so much present. I mean, it's, it's the kind of most present thing, perhaps, with the IPCC sure. reports and these constant prognostications that that now we got to see all of this in a kind of fast fast speed. Uh, we see all of this unfold in, in real time. And I think particularly perhaps the Sweden-Norway case of how do you prognosticate, for example, a second wave how, how, how fast will it yeah, boomerang come back at you? How will you bet on different things and different scenarios? And all these things that are sort of slowly being kind of this action that should perhaps be taken in terms of the climate issue, but is sort of slowly proceeding with a kind of non-action uh, like unfolding. Now, in, in, in this case, we got to see it all uh, as kind of, is, as in a weird sense, just watching how do these prognostications, how are they valued? What are these... Uh, what are these like forms of, of different futures? How do they compete? Who gets to say what? What are these expert cultures that then informs politicians that then informs societies in these really interesting complex ways? And it happened just so fast, just a couple of months, and then it was all changed again. And, and it was, I think that would be a, a way of, um, of thinking more as a kind of a scholarly perspective, I think a, a huge resource thinking about kind of climate expertise and all these different things, because this is very similar in so many ways in terms of the planetary scope and the kind of deep impact on so many people. So I think it was very interesting to see just how these how these things unfolded so rapidly. And I think there's a lot of things to sort of take with us from that going into these deeper, longer temporalities of, of sort of Anthropocene present. 
Let me, let me, Nilan, let me bring you in on this and, and ask it as in slightly different variety of this question, which has to do with the public health aspect of this. Because a, a lot of the way that we talk about public health is also resonant here. I mean, you have um, the pandemic, but it's, of course, understood against a backdrop of sort of broader health, access to health care, the persistent you know, comorbidities in the society, even the research that, that you're doing, sort of persistent health issues that are there. And trying to understand the one in the relation to the other is a real challenge for expert communities often. You know, how do we understand the pandemic against the broader health background of Turkey or any other country? I wonder how that comes up in the, in the work you've been doing. I guess it's really a question about, ultimately, how do we de define some line between what's a disaster and what's just sort of everyday life in the Anthropocene or everyday life in climate change? Yes, they um, did, of course, had to take uh, some um, other action in terms of managing um, managing other conditions and diseases and medication prescriptions. So because I've been looking more at the prescriptions and the medications that have been used, um, some have been um, some certain conditions have been moved on to automatic prescriptions, so people don't have to go in and see their doctor before they get their prescriptions, for instance. Um, but also in terms of access to healthcare and uh, the socioeconomic conditions that has also played out where um, there are a lot of like private and uh, public hospitals in, uh, in Turkey and especially in Istanbul. So people have been going into these hospitals to get tested and some pri private hospitals have been doing a lot of extra tests and they've had these COVID packages charging people um, three or four folds more than um, the, the COVID test. Um, so they've had to put a limit on those. Um, so there has been a lot of things um, and, and also psychologically, I've heard this from a lot of people, how mental health uh, has been uh, not been, you know, it, people have been uh, doing quite bad when it comes to mental health, especially the elderly, because they've been stuck at home, not being able to see people. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there are, you know, this 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 list can probably go on. Um, Nolan, just to stay with that, because you yeah. have the unique perspective of a person who can see this mm -hmm. through as an expert through the Scandinavian perspective, but also the Turkish perspective. Do you see some cultural mm. differences there in the way that sort of long-term uncertainties and risks are perceived? And I also recognize I'm asking you to somehow uh, essentialize Turkey and Scandinavia. So I don't mean to do that necessarily, but I am interested in some, because at this time, as we were talking earlier, there are these attempts to kind of try to unify what a country's response is or what a country's thinking is. And that's reflected through policy, but also through culture. That comparability must be interesting to you. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that a little bit. I think the priorities and uncertainties are quite different when you mm -hmm. compare the different countries. Uh, so like I said, the, the shops um, ha have been open uh, and even restaurants for a while to keep the economy going. and um, people don't really have the luxury to stay at home, um, although there have been calls to stay at home, um, other than the middle or higher class who can afford to do that. 
so um and, and there have been homeschooling but again it's very difficult for a family of more than uh one or two children to have access to laptops uh, and and for parents to be able to be at home to um help them work out the technology uh, and make sure that they actually sit in front of the screen this has been a problem across Europe as well, not only Turkey, but if, if a mother or father needs to go out to work um, and they can't, they don't have sick leave if they get ill, uh, there are, of course, a lot of uh, different priorities mm -hmm. there. Leonor, let me bring you in on, on this issue of the Anthropocene. Yeah, um, I think for us as, uh, as scholars who all and, and we all deal with with science or or the role or the work that science does in one way or the other uh, mostly critically uh, and and from a sort of social or some kind of constructivist perspective uh, I guess um, for us it was always clear that climate change there was a, there was an issue with with translating what the issue actually is into something that is comprehensible by anyone that is who's like that doesn't deal with this on a professional level right and i think what is um what is quite or what i could tell in my my sort of personal surroundings and also in in, in sort of news newspapers media the public debate is that many people started to make this connection or this comparison between COVID and climate change uh, um in 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 two sort of very specific ways and um, the first is that like the 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 decisions or the temporalities of the decisions that are made are kind of locked in. So you make a decision and then it's supposed to help, um, but you, you, there's no way of knowing it uh, and, until you're, you're two or three weeks down the line. Um, and, and that has to do with the other thing, which is that it's a threat that is invisible. It's, it's, uh, it's not there. So we need, or it's not vis visually there. So we need some kind of mediation to, uh, to translate the very existence of this thing into something that that is there. So eventually what we deal with as a broader public, unless someone in your surrounding really gets falls ill or passes away, is rely, we rely on, on, on media to, to pass this on for us. Um, and I was quite uh, ha yeah, happily surprised that I could see a lot of these kind of discussions unfolding mm -hmm. and sort of trans making it into the newspaper uh in in opt-eds of all crime of all sorts so in that sense i think it's there's definitely um something or a sort of a sort of positive push in that in that direction in terms of awareness mm. just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls we're talking with emil flato leonor borgesius nalan azak and eric isberg today about COVID 19 in scandinavia in Turkey and the rest of Europe. I, we're almost up on time and it is getting late, very late now where you are, but I want to get one more question in and maybe I'll, Leonor, I'll start with you and then see what others want to say about this. Um, I was in high school in 1989 when the wall came down and it was, of course, it was important in the United States, but not felt the way it was felt in Europe. I, I think you are all probably, it's fair to say, a sort of a post-1989 generation, uh, and the enthusiasms the, the world has channeled 
looking at Europe and within Europe, very broadly defined, have been profound enthusiasm for sort of wall smashing, unification, um, you know, putting fascism and the memory of fascism in light and then away. Um, and now we're in a time of migrant crisis, Brexit, and now this pandemic with the many and many uncertainties that you've all been talking about and the, the, the enforcement of a border between countries where even two years ago, you might've thought it was impossible to imagine a border being enforced. Um, I don't wanna make this a binary choice, Leonor, that you have to say things are getting better or getting worse, but I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that. And maybe even the way I framed it is a little too American and too simple, but I'm curious because it does seem like a time in which some of the old tensions are back. Yeah, I don't think it's it's a very bold statement to say that they are. Uh, discussions of, of anti-Semitism are really, I mean, they're very much there. Uh, Islamophobia, uh, racism, it's it's very much, uh, it's, it's very much popping up in places where it didn't, where it was more normal to, to call it out. Or you know, it's 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 occupying the discourse in a in a quite worrying way. Uh, I feel, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was actually born in 1989, uh, so I think what is what struck me very much so about this about about the crisis and the the issue of borders is um, that um, I was brought up in a Europe without borders. Um, I, I don't think I ever had the experience of crossing a border until I came to the United States for the first time uh, when I was 14, I think. Um, and I, I mean, obviously we have to talk about as well about how privilege plays into this, right? Like, you know, sort of European white upper middle class, uh, highly educated, but that's precisely also the point that the, the Schengen area uh, it's one of the many things uh, of, of the European project that, that promises this sort of a cosmopolitan uh, uh, European cit citizen, right? And it's, uh, it exists out of um, the ECTS uh, point system, the Erasmus program, uh, cheap flights within Europe, uh, railways, station, the mobility of labor. Um, so, so I think very for, for many many of us, especially, you know, international young researchers, um, this is, this, uh, Europe exists as this sort of, yeah, sort of um, homogenous space in which you can move around freely and this is how you organize your life. And then suddenly, without any warning, um, the rules are changed. And, and that does something very sort of disillusionary to, to the very trust in the fact that um, borders are, they're just a formality within Europe, I'm saying, right? Um, and uh, and this is sort of this pushback or the revival of, of nas national borders coincides with an already existing tendency of, of coming right-wing nationalism um, that, that can, uh, that becomes this, this sort of very toxic cocktail of, uh, yeah, this almost perfect, storm that um yeah i think what you what what we've seen in the uk with brexit is, is a perfect example of, of what can what can happen um there um yeah 
let me bring Milan in on that. Yeah, um, just shortly, I was living in the UK when Brexit hit, and um, so I'm, I'm a Danish citizen. Um, and suddenly, we had to just think about, oh, so what do we do? So, you know, suddenly everything just changed. What's going to happen now uh, to our rights? Can we can we stay here? Can we work here? Um, do we pay the same tuition fees? Um, and uh, yeah, so we had to go, go through a whole another extra bureaucratic process uh, as a family. Um, but there are a lot of people who are who are not as um, fortunate and who who are struggling, and there are a lot of uncertainties ahead of them. Uh, so, but thank you, Leonor. I think you kind of touched on <laughs> um, some very important points, and I I agree. Emil, can I get your perspective on this or anything else that we left hanging earlier in the conversation that you wanted to hone in on? Um, well, I think maybe, you know, I'm from I'm from uh, Oslo, which is not a big city, but it is a putatively cosmopolitan city. So I feel like I was raised as part of this kind of borderless uh, community um, that, you know, so many of my friends studied abroad and and didn't really think of ourselves as, as the region. Um, and I think the good part that has come out of, of the changes that have happened uh, in the last couple of years is that the idea of, of home has has resurfaced mm -hmm. and also that it's playing out in Norway. You know, xenophobia is kind of like the last big wave of populism here. Now it's more about decentralization and the importance of, you know, you know, Norway is a huge country, right? And, and, and keeping all, all the small places alive. So. I don't necessarily mourn that if nowhereism is right. is is dying, um, but um, I am afraid. Eric, let me give you the last word on this. Yeah, I think I think Leonor really summed it up very very succinct there with like how these different crises in, in Europe sort of play, comes out on top of each other in a sense that this strengthening nationalism and, and COVID has really also self-reinforced certain structures that were already there, that there was already a tendency uh, to sort of strengthen borders. And I, I, I lived uh, close to the border to Copenhagen. I lived in Malmö in southern Sweden, right next to the border to Denmark. And during the refugee crisis, that was very a very sort of symbolic, I think, moment was the bridge that was built uh, between Malmö and Copenhagen in 2000 as this great the testament to the kind of post 1989 order and Sweden connecting to the continent mm -hmm. and they put up all these huge fences on the bridge to sort of and stopped everyone and checked for passports in this uh, Swedish police as a huge like a very sort of militaristic um, it's show show of force in a way in this in this very symbolic bridge uh, and, and that really uh, that was yeah five years ago now so I think that that kind of tendency has has come and it seems like it's with COVID a similar things has happened again but in a different way so I think what Leonor said there that there are definitely multiple things unfolding and affecting each other in, in in the same time. I want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking with Laura Helmuth, the editor of Scientific American. And I want to thank my guests today for this really rich and um, sprawling in a good way conversation. Emil Flato, Leonor Borgesius, Nalan Azak, and Eric Hisberg. Thanks a million for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you.
Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll see you right back here at five o'clock tomorrow. Thanks.